Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault for an older episode of the show. This one was called Ghosts of Wind and Rain. I believe it was about uh, weather-oriented ghost lore and, and other creatures. This was originally published on October 14th, 2021. Let, let us unleash the storm. There's a storm coming. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Rob, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is finally the year that you've gotten full-blown into Rocky Erickson. Is that right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I would guess so. Yeah, I got, I, I'd listened to him a little in the past, and, and this year I, I, I got even more into him. Yeah. Okay, so Rocky has long been one of my favorite uh, rock and roll vampires, and one of the things I love about Rocky Erickson monster songs is how much they're about the weather. Um, so mm. you may remember the line from his great, uh, his great anthem, the night of the vampire. If it's raining and you're running, don't slip in mud because if you do, you'll slip in blood. I mean, that's just logic. Yeah. And there's a really infectious glee to that kind of logic, but also I, I enjoy the weather, uh, weather represented in songs like the wind and more, which I know, uh, compares sort of the, the voice of Lucifer to, uh, to the, the storm winds that are battering through the house. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and if anyone out there is not sure who we're talking about, um, you should look up Rocky Erickson, uh, who uh, also what was the, the other group? Thirteenth um, Thirteenth Floor Elevators, Ele- yeah. Elevators, garage yeah. like band from the late sixties, early seventies, based in I think Austin, definitely out of Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, fantastic psychedelic rock, uh, but then Rocky Erickson had a had a long uh, solo career after that of all, all different kinds of music. You know, he he. Um, so some of the stuff he released, uh, he he had a lot of uh, troubles with mental health, and at some points he was in psychiatric institutions. But even in those periods, would sort of make these little demos of uh, songs recorded. Uh, it sounds like just on a tape recorder that are very simple, but but strangely beautiful. And then at other times, he would make full blown uh, monster rock and roll albums. There's one called. Evil mm-hmm. one that's just fantastic. That's got a kind of Credence Clearwater revival style rock production, uh, but all the songs are about uh, demons and ghosts and and fifties Atomic Age monster movies. Yeah, and it's pretty hard stuff too. Like it's uh, like it's 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 got a hard rock vibe that yeah. I think uh, might surprise some people. Uh, so it's I think it was produced by somebody from Credence, if memory serves. Stu Cook, uh, I think so. Yeah, but 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 harder than Credence, uh, in my opinion. Well, all that is preamble to uh, the fact that today we wanted to talk about the intersection of ghosts and weather. Yeah, and I, I have to stress that we absolutely won't be able to cover everything here because there are just too many storm monsters and storm deities out there, uh, storm-related uh, ghosts and other creatures. But we're going to be covering various examples that seem related to some of the, the core ideas that we were kicking around for this episode. And uh, and, and really, the, the central idea has to do with a recent uh, trip you went on. Oh, yeah. So I was recently uh, in coastal South Carolina, uh, Rob. Have you been to coastal South Carolina? I assume probably. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and of course, South Carolina plays with a lot of ghosts. Tons of ghosts. Everywhere you go there, like you can find a little a local visitor center that's got a local uh, self-published ghost author who's collected mm-hmm. all the lore. And they've got it in a in a book that the font of the book is usually Times New Roman. Uh, it, but it's <laughs> uh, But it'll have lots of great, you know, local ghost stories in it. And so there's one that I was reading about from a a particular place on uh, the South Carolina coast, a little island called Pauly's Island. And so to explain this, I want to refer to an article that was published by Myrtle Beach Online. So it's a local news article from the Myrtle Beach area. That's also coastal South Mm -hmm. Carolina by a writer named Tyler Fleming. The article says it was last updated in September 2019. I'm not sure if that's when it was originally published, but it's a this local news article trying to track down the origins of a bit of ghost lore from this area of the South Carolina coastline. And specifically, this is the story of a being called the Gray Man. Hmm. You know, I'd say it's used a lot, but I'm, I'm still a sucker for... Uh, for that formulation of a creature name, just the the blank man, especially if whatever the mm-hmm. word in the middle is, is a single syllable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the green man, the gray man, the tall man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So according to the legend, this is a spirit that wanders around on the shore on and around this small island called Polly's Island, South Carolina, uh, usually appearing just before the landfall of terrible storms as a translucent gray figure stalking the beaches and boardwalks in a long cloak. Sometimes he's literally described as dressed like a pirate. Uh, and one, uh, one funny, I think a uh, little, little justified 
accusation of his identity is that he is Blackbeard. He is, uh, I don't know how you're supposed to say his last name, Ed- Edward Teach or Teach or Thatch, mm. however it is. Yeah, yeah, with the, with the burning brands in his beard. Yeah. This this gets into an interesting area that I I, I like about um, about ghosts of this nature because uh, and this is all thoroughly non scientific of course but we have this idea that uh, you know that, that something bad happens and the ghost is like a lingering after effect of that thing mm-hmm. um, and then certainly there's also this idea that a ghost say Blackbeard's ghost uh, uh, or just this mysterious gray man uh, would have potentially insider information about what's going to happen. Maybe, you know, they, they died at sea and therefore they know the sea a little better and they can, they can warn us about things. But then there's also an idea of the, of, uh, of hauntings as being, uh, you know, th- things that work in both directions in time, uh, that they can be harbingers of, of de- terrible events. Um, you know, perhaps they're even attached to events that have yet to come. Well, yeah, and that is exactly the case with the gray man. So contrary to what you might assume about this spectral figure, you know, crunching along through the sand and the, in the, in the storms and the wind, uh, local legend usually describes the gray man as a benign or even a helpful spirit. And the purpose of his hauntings is to serve as a warning to people who live nearby that a coming storm is going to be especially destructive. Mm. So uh, as a few examples of this, uh, this belief among locals, I was looking at a 2018 article in Southern Living by Megan Overdeep uh, about this ghost legend. And it describes how there were locals in, in South Carolina who claimed sightings of the gray man just before Hurricane Hazel in 1954 and Hurricane Hugo in 1989. Uh, but as a more recent example, also this, this article embedded tweets, uh, like people tweeting grainy photos of alleged gray man sightings ahead of Hurricane Florence in 2018. So, Rob, I've embedded uh, one for you to look at here. Listeners, you, you can go look up this article in Southern Living if you want to find these tweets. But um, th- this one embeds a photo that is allegedly taken uh, at a boardwalk that uh, goes over the beach on Polly's Island. And there is – I don't know. So, it's a, it's a very grainy photograph. It's got a lot of what looks like digital artifacts and pixelation in it. And then there's this big – sort of pale gray smudge in the middle of it that looks, oh yeah, maybe like it could be some kind of vertical object on the boardwalk. But some people apparently looked at that and said, hey, it's the gray man. Well, I have to point out that the the tweet that is shared in this article, uh, the tweeter uh, does have a blue check mark. So this is verified. <laughs> this is this is verified. It, Proof of the afterlife confirmed. Yeah, as usual, why do sightings of the paranormal so strongly favor low fidelity documentation? I I think I'm not positive, but this looks like it's from some kind of like uh, uh, stationary live camera that sort of documents you know foot traffic on the beach. I think that you can tune into and see what's going on there. I'm not positive that's what it is, but. Uh, I know there is stuff like that around there, and so that that's what it looks like to me. But it could be something else. Anyway, yeah, it's very grainy. It's got all the, you know. It's got the the pixelated artifacts in it, and I just want some high definition gray man, but I can't get it. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, obviously, I think that gets down to the, just the the fact that yeah, sightings occur when things are obscured and uncertain. They emerge out of uncertainty and. Uh, uh, and, 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 de- and depleted uh, visual efficiency. Yeah, uh, so, I th- that'll come uh, back so, later with something I want to get mm-hmm. into in a minute. Uh, so to quote from this uh, article by Tyler Fleming here, quote, 
Not only does he warn people, but he is also known to protect their property from a storm. A woman in 1954 claimed to see the gray man ahead of the infamous Hurricane Hazel hitting the area. She said not only was her house spared from the devastation, the beach towels she left on her balcony were still hanging up. So the ghost is like, oh, madam, I... I I, I, those those beach towels are just too beautiful. I can't stand to see them uh, swept into the storm. I'll protect your house. But what about all the people who died? I mean, shouldn't the ghost have prioritized the, the people instead of the beach towels? <laughs> it's probably, I've seen people, but these beach towels, my God, they're beautiful. So this article in uh, Myrtle Beach Online goes on to list some of the local speculation about the alleged origin of this ghost. It does not mention Blackbeard. That one might be a kind of spurious allegation. Uh, uh, well, I mean, I think all of these are probably just made up later legends, but uh, but trying to fa- uh, track down at least what are the earliest of the legends – um, so the source that the article cites on these is the Georgetown Museum. Georgetown is a, a city near Pauly's Island. Um, and so they've got, a, a, I guess, a museum that has some stuff about this local legend. And one story, this, this appears to be the dominant one, is about a man who perished in the South Carolina Low Country in 1822. And the tale goes that this young man had been traveling abroad for two years, and in September of 1822, he decided he he wanted to come home so he could see his fiancée back in South Carolina, and they could set a date for their wedding. And he was apparently in such a hurry to get back and see her face again that he took a shortcut through the marsh, and he ended up stuck in quicksand, which spelled his doom. And then his fiance, she's grieving over the fact that, uh, I guess, I don't know if she found out that he died or if he just never showed up, but she's grieving for some reason. And she goes out walking along the shore and she's treading through the sand. And while strolling alone on the beach, she sees a dark silhouette. It's a, it's the figure of a man. And she realizes that it's the soul of her would be husband who died in, in the marsh. And she's so troubled by this vision and others like it that she has later that, that her family decides to relocate inland. They, they move away from that house. And the very next day after they leave, a hurricane sweeps through, leaving a, a path of destruction that would have killed them had they not left. And it's apparently this legend that, that could give rise to this, this common belief that the ghost appears to people to warn them of storms. And as a quick side note, I wanted to mention that I love that the story involves quicksand, which, of course, is one of my favorite uh, plot devices. Uh, but that does have an environmental reality to it. You, you might not want to call it quicksand, but the, uh, the South Carolina low country – uh, especially the marshes, it's sort of like the the mouth of the the what they usually call the creeks. You know, the little uh, the tributaries of water that eventually drain out into the ocean. Um, it, these areas will form this buildup of fine sediment that is known as pluff mud. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I was reading at least one article from the uh, – I think it was the Hilton Head area that was all about uh, the story of a lady who goes out walking in the marsh for some reason and she ends up stuck in the pluff mud. And she's there until like into the evening and they have to send rescuers in to, to 
dig her out uh, because you can very easily get stuck in this stuff. You can sink into it. It's a, uh, there are a lot of myths about quicksand and, uh, and, and things like it that you would like sink down under your head and drown. That's usually not a very common thing to happen. If it happens at all, really, I think the risk of, of quicksand and even pluff mud is just that you would get stuck in it and have trouble getting yourself out. Yeah, I've certainly been in, uh, I don't know if it constitutes pluff mud or or if it's just, you know, very wet sand, but I've been in, I've noticed some coastal situations where you have a real, uh, real boot sucker or sandal sucker of a, of a situation, you know, where the, the, the sand is just the right consistency that if you, you step into it, you might be pulling a bare foot back out. Yes, and it, it's almost, it's wonderful that it creates this... Um this almost untouchable terrain because there are a lot of areas around in the, the low country where you can like, uh, if there, there'll be a nature preserve and you can take a boardwalk out over the marsh. And if you look down on it, you can see all kinds of life, you know, things are happening down mm-hmm. in the pluff mud. There may be these big colonies of oysters and you can see fiddler crabs popping up out of holes and running around and all the birds hunting them. Uh, but yeah, you, it's the kind of place where you wouldn't really want to go down and venture yourself. Mm hmm. At least not without some special equipment, maybe like weight displacement boots or something. Now, apparently there are some alternatives for the origin of the Gray Man legend. Um, uh, to, to quote again from uh, that uh, the Myrtle Beach Online article, quote, uh, Other theories tell a different story. One still has a man returning from sea, but this time his fiance decided to marry his best friend instead. He throws himself into the Waccamaw, this is the Waccamaw River, which is a nearby river, and then later his fiance and friend do the same. Other stories say he was an unknown sailor who washed up on shore and died shortly after. Some believe he is the original owner of Polly's Island, George Polly, who lived there in the early 1700s. Hmm. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the, uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. 
brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Now, of course, this would be far from the only legendary supernatural being associated with weather phenomena. You know, there, there are tons of ghosts and monsters and creatures and gods that uh, may not serve exactly this purpose, saying like, hey, a storm's coming, but they're in one way or another associated specifically with storms or other transient weather phenomena. And so while poking around on the subject, I came across what I thought was a, an interesting and kind of funny article. Uh, so this was on uh, this was a weather news article by Michael Kuhn on AccuWeather.com with the headline, quote, <laughs> Ghost Hunter, colon, thunderstorms cause an increase in paranormal activity. Well, I mean, certainly if you've watched enough horror films and, and ghost movies, you know that this is the case. You've got to have a thunderstorm going in the background. Right. I mean, it's it's a classic of horror fiction, right? Uh, so you could argue mm -hmm. about the the order of causality there. But uh, yeah, you know, you got the classic, uh, what's it, the, the Bulwer-Lytton line, it was a dark and stormy night. Uh, and then the idea that 
it seems that uh, stormy conditions have long inspired uh, gothic modes of thought. I mean, you know, there's the classic story of uh, how did uh, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley come up with the idea for Frankenstein? It was during that summer when when she and Byron and the whole crew were sort of like stuck inside due to this, this dark and stormy summer sort of, it was the year without a summer, which uh, in a weird twist of fate, I think was likely due to volcanic activity on the other side of the world. Um, Mm -hmm. But that was the summer where she worked out the ideas for the story that would become Frankenstein, sort of a foundational text of modern horror. And so it's kind of hard for me to believe that the dark and stormy summer didn't in a way play a role in the formation of that story in her mind. But, um, yeah. uh, but anyway, so, so this article about the, the paranormal activity in the thunderstorm. So the article consults a paranormal enthusiast named Mark keys, who at the time of this article, at least uh, was director of the Pennsylvania paranormal association. Uh, I looked him up and it seems like he's featured on some, some ghost hunter type TV shows. The one that was, uh, I forget the name. It was called like uh, paranormal nine one one or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, based on his quotes, I think, I think this guy seems to uh, take a sort of uh, ghost realist position, at least like he, he, uh, he cites, for example, the advice of a of a spirit medium as if the, he believes this is likely to contain uh, information. And so, do you think there are skeptical ghost hunters who you call them? They show up at the, <laughs> their door, and you're like, "Hey, I think I've got a haunting." And their first thing is, "Well, look, first of all, ghosts aren't real." <laughs> well, there and then, <laughs> there could be there could be open minded but skeptical ghost hunters. I mean, I don't know, yeah, like yeah. I, I I feel like that's the attitude I would try to take. I would say, you know, I I probably I think most ghost sightings or probably all of them are not really uh, spectral beings from another plane. They're probably something about the perception of the person experiencing it, but you don't know for sure. I mean, you at least look and see, yeah. you try to find something out. I mean, it would be beneficial to have more people in that, in, in, in that mo- mode yeah. where like they're an expert, you consult and they're like, okay, there are no, so there's there are no ghosts, but here are a list of things that, that could contribute to this this very real and, and potentially frightening experience that you had. I, I'm sure there so, are uh, some people like that, but I I guess I would assume – this may not be fair. I don't know. But I would assume if you got like TV shows, uh, you're, you're probably at least uh, – at least for the cameras leaning into embracing the sort of uh, ghost realist position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nobody's watching. I guess you could watch it. I could – I guess I could imagine a ghost hunter show with this kind of a theme. Like we're here – to bust the ghosts, but not only the ghosts themselves, but the idea of ghosts. That, that could be fun. Kind of a, a pin and teller, um, you know, uh, c- kind of approach to it. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I don't know. It could be done well. Like, I feel like, like most things, you know, it, it could be done well if it was done well. But uh, coming back to this article, the thing that really got a hook in my brain about it uh, and that I thought was really interesting was that the article made an attempt to posit a physical mechanism by which thunderstorms allow ghosts to appear. And I think basically the implication is that ghosts need to get charged up by lightning. Hmm. It's not said explicitly, but this does appear to be the implication uh, given by the the guy cited in this article. So uh, to, to quote from the article, some believe that apparitions or spirits need some source of energy to manifest their presence into the physical plane in order to communicate with the living. This could include drawing energy from electrical circuits and even batteries. 
And then uh, this is quoting from Keys. If a spirit is trying to manifest, that is, become physically visible, it will pull energy out of the environment to do that. This could include heat, as cold spots are commonly reported, as well as in areas where a haunting has been reported. It seems to be shortly after a lightning storm that they do notice an increase, he said. And then uh, then this is the part where Keyes claims that his psychic medium will back up the fact that after a thunderstorm, there is, quote, a lot more activity. Um, now, you know, as, as I think, uh, will be clear if you've listened to us for a while or even from our earlier discussion, I, I would say we generally take a, you know, broadly open-minded, but specifically skeptical position on the physical reality of paranormal reports like this. So, so while we're, we're not going to embrace the ghost realist position, I would be potentially open to the claim from the, the experience of a paranormal investigator who says that thunderstorms are correlated with increased reports of ghost sightings, poltergeist, hauntings, and so forth. So I think that could well be true, and that could well be informed by experience, because there would be nothing supernatural in that. You just have to say, well, yeah, people do say they get haunted more often after there's been a storm or around the time of a storm. Um, but I would tend to think that if this is true, the mechanism would more likely be that the thunderstorm somehow causes the perception of ghosts and wandering spirits rather than literally conjuring them. Yeah, I mean, we have to remember that what does what does lightning do but but very briefly illuminates the darkened world. Um, just a flash and gives us a, a chance to sort of fill in in the gaps there uh, with whatever you might you know expect to be there in the storm. Uh, that's a really good point, and it's further informed by some of the stuff that's quoted in this article as like, w- what are the most common things people report as evidence of hauntings in their homes? According to this paranormal investigator, he says that, okay, so first of all, you've got, uh, think, you know, visual evidence such as people witnessing shadows and spectral human forms, uh, which, I mean, seems like a darkened sky and then like briefly illuminated flashes of lightning. That seems like, okay, that's sort of perfect conditions to create illusory perceptions of uh, strangely shaped shadows and things like that. Mm-hmm. But then another thing that it identifies, and this is something that I think uh, from my reading is, is a very common uh, source of paranormal reports, what, what I would call appliance phenomena. Um, so the, the article says, quote, reports of lights flickering and electronic equipment turning on and off on its own, even when unplugged, is common. Other people report more physical activity, such as doors opening or closing, lights or TVs turning off by themselves. Believe it or not, we've had a lot of reports of stereos, radios turning themselves on when they're not even plugged in. Mm. And so, you know, it's hard to judge just from generalizations like this, but it's funny to me how much like everything that was just listed, except for the unplugged part, uh, is stuff that would be pretty much perfectly explained by the the physical effects of a storm. So like doors opening and closing by themselves. Of course, during a storm, you have wind and pressure differentials that can blow a door one way or the other. And then the appliance phenomena, that's the, the anomalous activation or deactivation of electrical appliances, which I know from personal experience, and probably most of you do as well, that this can happen due to storms affecting the power grid and the power lines leading to your house. And Rob, I don't know if you've ever had this happen in your house, but sometimes like uh, power supply issues during a storm don't affect the entire house at once, you know? So like you can have, um, yeah. uh, you can have like a power outage where just everything goes out. We usually recognize what that is, but we, we occasionally have stuff happen 
where, you know, like some parts of the house will kind of flash on and off and other things won't. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, I think that would not explain issues where people are claiming that appliances that are not plugged in start turning on and stuff. Like a lot of the reports emphasize these extra levels of implausibility. You know, the stereo wasn't even plugged in and it started playing Whalen. And uh, I have no way of knowing this, but I part of me just kind of suspects that the appliance was unplugged claim in particular. It seems like a, like a, just a very likely exaggeration place to go. Like maybe you witness some apparently anomalous activation or deactivation of an appliance, an electrical appliance, and it feels really notable when you f- first notice it. But then thinking back on it, uh, oh yeah, sometimes things do just turn on and off. This kind of needs some extra beef. And it's like, well, were we even sure it was plugged in? It might not have even been plugged in. Yeah, I mean, we have so many things plugged in these days that sometimes it's hard to keep count of what's what's plugged in, what's unplugged, and you go to unplug one thing and you actually unplug the other. So plenty of room for uh, misunderstanding and altered memory there. Yeah, but th- so the other main fork of the storm causation here on, on the hauntings, I would think would tend to be um, the effects of storms on human psychology, storms or even atmospheric conditions before or after storms. Yeah, I mean, this makes perfect sense. You know, ghosts are often associated with darkness. Uh, Lightning, again, momentarily illuminates the dark. And even if it's not nighttime, uh, you know, you have a storm roll in, what does it do? It brings a certain level of darkness and shadow with it. Throw in the rain, uh, some booming thunder, and you have just a creepy environment. Uh, Not just creepy, but I'm thinking about the informational and sensory effects of storms. Coming back to that grainy photo we were talking about earlier, I would argue Mm -hmm. that stormy weather reduces the sensory resolution of your environment. Um, So there's darkening due to cloud cover. Less light means less visual information or certainly uh, less certainty in your visual information. And then once you get uh, mist and rain, visibility is further reduced. And wind and thunder and rain also reduce the auditory clarity of your environment. So Imagine you know turning up the volume on a staticky radio channel. It's harder to discern the true signals, sound signals around you, and it's easier to mistakenly perceive a signal within the noise. And I think this would fit with what I said earlier about ghosts so often appearing these days on low-resolution film, video, and audio recordings. Yeah, if I'm not sure what I see, if I'm not sure what is recorded in uh, you know one form or another, then that creates an opportunity to lean into some sort of supernatural understanding of what it might be. Now, I was trying to think about other things here where um, could could there be other sensations people get maybe when a storm is approaching that puts them in an alternative, uh, an alternative state of mind or has some detectable effect on humans that could lead to paranormal experiences? Um I'm not convinced on this one, but there there are at least some questions I would like to pose. Um, and so, for example, one of the things I was thinking about was barometric pressure. Mm-hmm. So we all live under atmospheric pressure. At sea level, under normal conditions, you walk around with about 14.7 pounds per square inch of atmosphere pressing down on and around you. Uh, but we don't normally perceive the weight of the atmosphere because we're equalized to it. Uh, And in fact, if a significant amount of that weight were to be removed, we could probably notice it. Like if you go high up uh, enough, if you go to a high altitude, 
you can feel a difference in the reduced air pressure. Obviously, because you know the higher up you go, the less atmosphere there is to, to uh, is above you to press down. Uh, but air pressure at any surface altitude is variable. So at sea level, changes in the weather, changes of the heating of the Earth's surface can cause imbalances in barometric pressure. And so as you have a region of the Earth's surface that gets hot, that hot air rises. Uh, you can almost imagine it being sucked up into the upper atmosphere by a giant vacuum. This forms a vacuum below it. It forms a low-pressure system. And when you have a low-pressure region, pressure is falling, that means air from the surrounding regions of the Earth's surface will flow into that area of falling pressure to compensate. And we perceive this flow of air as wind. This is what wind is. Uh, and then the, the rising warm air in a low-pressure system also carries with it water vapor content, which condenses into clouds and eventually has to fall back down as rain. So falling barometric pressure is generally taken as a sign that storms are coming. If your barometric pressure is going down and your wind speed is increasing, you can be pretty sure there is a storm headed your way. So that's generally factual, but I guess what I was wondering about was, well, okay, so do signs like that, does low or falling barometric pressure have any effect on humans that could lead to sort of different states of mind or behavior? This one seems uncertain to me. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. Psychological studies have tracked all kinds of effects of weather on mood, cognition, and behavior. And it seems to me that while there have been a few studies finding some effects of barometric pressure if those effects are sound, they appear to be a lot more subtle than the stronger effects of factors like temperature. Mm. But to cite just a couple, at least, of the reported effects, uh, for, for one example, uh, I was looking at a study called A Warm Heart and a Clear Head, the Contingent Effects of Weather on Mood and Cognition. This was published in Psychological Science in 2005. This was a study of weather as a as a function uh, generally of seasonal changes and, and looking somewhat into uh, questions about seasonal affective disorder. Uh, but the authors here write in their abstract, quote, in two correlational studies and an experiment manipulating participants' time outdoors, pleasant weather, this would mean higher temperature or higher barometric pressure, was related to higher mood, better memory, and broadened cognitive style during the spring as time spent outside increased. The same relationships between mood and weather were not observed during other times of year, though, and indeed hotter weather was associated with lower mood in the summer. Uh, though, of course, obviously, you know, you can have uh, hot weather in the summer that is uh, associated with low-pressure regions that lead up to, to a storm. And to uh, further elucidate their findings, the, they write in their results section that, quote, as in some of the previous research, and they cite Clark and Watson in 1988 and Watson in 2000, neither temperature nor barometric pressure was directly related to mood valence. However, the interactions of time spent outside with temperature and with barometric pressure were both significantly related to mood valence in the expected direction. As time spent outside increased, the temperature, mood, and pressure mood relationships became more positive. So basically, if you have participants, uh, if you tell them they need to spend more than 30 minutes outside, higher temperatures and higher pressure are associated with better moods and outcomes. Um, and, uh, and But if you have people spend uh, less than 30 minutes outside, then the relationship is actually reversed. So like good weather outside and having to stay indoors apparently has, uh, has a negative effect uh, on mood and cognition in this finding. All right. Yeah. I think most of us can relate to that. You know, if you, 
if it's a nice day outside, but it's a day where you only get to experience that whilst moving from one indoor environment to another, yeah, that's kind of a bummer. But if you get to be outside the whole day or a large portion of the day, then that's great. Uh, but unfortunately, so while this did look at uh, barometric pressure as one of the things informing uh, the, the weather states it was looking at, this combination of temperature and barometric pressure, what they were really looking at was like, what are the effects of, of good good at you know so like high pressure high temperature mm -hmm. is there anything that directly tests for no 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 what is it what is it about low pressure specifically you know that state when you would expect a storm to be heading your way uh, there are some other findings that seem potentially more directly informative on this question but i also feel somewhat cautious about them they don't feel uh, super conclusive so for example one study i came across was published in the canadian journal of psychiatry in 2003 by thomas shorey et al and it looked at uh, documented emergency psychiatric visits to a city's psychiatric emergency room in the year 1999 in a mid-sized city. And uh, they also looked at city police department data and suicide data. And uh, what they found was, quote, the data suggests that total numbers of acts of violence and emergency psychiatry visits are significantly associated with low barometric pressure. But then they found that psychiatric inpatient admissions and suicides were not associated with any of the weather variables they investigated. So that's one of those things that's okay. That that's a, a bird's eye level observation of something that happened in one city that might merit further investigation. But I don't think we could say anything conclusive just based on that. Um, so I would be skeptical about drawing too many conclusions from. Uh, from ideas about the relationship between barometric pressure specifically and psychology. Uh, but the conditions that precede a storm, both the obvious and cognitively recognized conditions like clouds, darkening skies and thunder, and then perhaps some subconsciously perceived conditions like dropping barometric pressure or increasing winds, I think it could possibly give rise to a different state of mind when a storm is approaching, certainly the, the cognitively recognized ones. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So I think these are all excellent ideas to keep in mind as we proceed through the rest of the episode, where I thought we might just look at some various ghosts and monsters and sometimes divine or partially divine figures from around the world that have something to do with with weather or in or at least in one in one case has nothing to do with weather but gets into the idea of a ghost harbinger okay so um first of all we'll go ahead and get the one out of the way that doesn't really seem to have anything to do with weather um actually i guess i have a a couple of them uh here And the first one here is uh, is Herne the Hunter. Have you heard of this particular ghost? N- not until you introduced him to me. So this is apparently a ghostly phosphorescent mounted hunter said to ride through the woods surrounding Windsor Castle in the UK. He's covered in furs and his head is obscured by the skull and antlers of a great stag. Mm. 
Now, when I when I heard about this, I had to, of course, look it up in uh, in Carol Rose's uh, encyclopedic volumes on monsters and fairies and whatnot. And she makes a, a possible connection here between this legend and older Celtic uh, beliefs in a particular horned fertility god uh, whose uh, name was uh, Sir Nunus. Um, that's C E R N U N N O S. That's at least one modern spelling of it. Mm. But this uh, this particular apparition was a uh, was referenced by Shakespeare, and uh, in the twentieth century at least has come to be seen as a harbinger of disaster, not of storms, but of economic and political disaster, which I found interesting. Mm. So sightings of the hunter here have been attributed to the 1931 economic depression, the 1936 abdication crisis, the 1939 declaration of war, and the 1952 death of George VI. Uh, Another version I've read is that uh, Herne the hunter always appears when a monarch is close to death. Well, this raises a question for me about a a distinction we could make about harbinger uh, deities. Mm Mm-hmm. Or maybe not deities. I don't know if, if Herne here is a, is a god or just a, a creature or being of some kind, whatever you would call it. The, the, these harbinger beings, you could say that, okay, if they appear right before a disaster of some kind, whether that's a hurricane or, or an economic depression or the death of a monarch, are they appearing in a benign spirit saying like, hey, I have divine foreknowledge because I'm of the other plane. I'm not of this world, so I'm not bound by time. And I'm just giving you a warning. Like I'm here to let you know so you can prepare. Or are they on the sort of uh, uh, disastrous causation side is like, uh, you know, are they an ill omen is seeing them uh, in some way part of the causative structure of the disaster that comes or do they even directly bring it about by appearing yeah yeah you see various interpretations i guess of what exactly is going on um and and we'll 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 keep discussing this but uh, uh another little tale that i read this was in rose's book um referring to work by folklorist ruth tongue um it's a story, uh, Tongue writes of the, this uh, tale that was circulating about three British youths who were decked out in the Teddy Boy style of the 1960s. <laughs> Teddy you can Boy. Look that up if, if you need a, a visual of what that would look like. Uh, they were, they were uh, you know, up to, I don't know if they were up to no good, but they were, they were out, they were hanging out in the woods, and what did they find? A horn. And um, I believe the story goes that they were thinking, oh, well, there must have been some sort of a, a film shoot going on here. And they left a prop. Uh, we've got this horn. Let's go ahead and blow it. So they blow the horn. And then sure enough, uh, the unseen spirit begins to pursue them through the woods and, uh, you know, getting closer and closer. And finally, an arrow uh, seems to fly uh, and slays one of them dead. But there's not a single physical wound. It seems to have been some sort of a ghost arrow. Mm. Uh uh, so uh, that, that's a that's a fun little tale as well, and of course, this all r- relates back to other traditions of the wild hunt myth of some sort of uh, of a ghostly being or beings, sometimes in the company of uh, of, of hellhounds uh, that goes out on strange hunts in the night, and you don't want to run afoul of them. Something is incongruous between that and the teddy boy thing. I'm hung up on the teddy boy <laughs> detail. Is this a commentary on the yeah. Teddy Boy fashion trend, or 
I think it's just, you know, on the youth of the day. Okay. So it's like whatever the youth, you can imagine various uh, youth fashion trends uh-huh. in Britain and uh, and then being reflected in versions of this story. It makes it seem very cinematic. I can imagine well, the cinematic version of So this. if Herne has a stag skull on top of his head and you look up Teddy Boy hairstyles, I mean, you could see some certain basic shape and contour similarities where their uh, pompadours look kind of like stag skulls. Yeah, yeah. I guess without horns, but <laughs> now as far as, as ghostly harbingers go, I, I know some of you are probably thinking of this. Um, this is more in the realm of cryptids and and UFOlogy, but um, there's the uh, the alleged supernatural harbinger of the Silver Bridge collapse of 1967. This is a bridge that spanned the Ohio River, uh, the Mothman. Uh, there have been books and movies about this, uh, but the connection, the original connection between the collapse and sightings of the Mothman, I'm to understand, are largely due to the writings of UFOologist John Keel. Mm. I think this story is the inspiration behind the plot of that Richard Gere movie, The Mothman Prophecies, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah. Wait. I've never seen it, but I'm familiar with oh, it. Oh, you know what? So, we watched it a few years back. We like to revisit... Uh, uh, not just classic horror films, but, you know, Rachel and I sometimes watch, like, uh, Fallen by the Wayside horror films that nobody really talks about <laughs> anymore. And so this one was, what did this come out in the early 2000s or something? Um, I think yeah, so, yeah. Sometime around then has Richard Gere, and it's about this whole uh, situation. And you know what? I got to say, it, it's not perfect, but there it, it's got some good ghostly atmosphere in it. It was actually pretty spooky. I, a, a, a pretty solid thumbs up. Now, uh, there are some other harbinger spirits of note. Uh, there's the the Kairath, uh, which is a harbinger spirit in the folklore of Wales. It's a, a banshee-like being that wails and groans as she passes through the city streets at night, warning of impending disaster, including epidemics, which, uh, of course, is interesting. And then, uh, of course, speaking of, there's the banshee of Irish legend that wails under the window of a family member to portend that family member's death. I guess this comes back to the question I brought up a minute ago, because I think I've read about this in the context of the Banshee before, where it's not really clear to me whether the belief is that the Banshee knows the death is going to happen and is sort of informing the family of such by their behavior, or whether or not it's intentional on the Banshee's part. The Banshee is letting them know, or the Banshee's presence is somehow causing the death. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, unanswerable questions about the strange doings of uh, of weird creatures. And I guess that's one of the reasons that makes them weird and otherworldly, is you don't know what their role in the whole scenario is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what are you doing here? Are you feeding off of the... The, uh, of the misery of uh, and the bereavement, or are you here as an agent of death? Uh, what exactly is going on? Are you trying to warn us? Or is it something to beyond any of these interpretations? Hmm. They're here on ghost business. That's all you know. Right. Now, uh, let's get uh, back into just ideas of storms and uh, rain and water and uh, cataclysmic weather. So plenty of cultures have major flood, uh, storm, and cataclysm myths, and and China is no exception. Uh, There's, of course, the story of you, the great, who overcomes the deluge with drainage channels and earthwork. Uh, There's also the Chinese flood myth concerning the water god uh, Gong Gong, uh, sometimes relegated as one of the four perils. Uh, So this is a vast serpent with a human head, red hair, and... uh, Gong Gong is uh, said to have caused a great flood by bumping into Mount Buzio, uh, which caused the sky pillar to collapse, resulting in just cosmic disorder. You end up having to have the goddess Nua uh, step in, repair the sky pillar in order to bring uh, order back out of chaos. 
And sometimes this myth and the myth of you, the great, are, are linked together. Mm-hmm. And then there's the myth of um, Ho Yi, the, uh, the archer. Uh, you may remember him from his key role in the myth of the surplus suns or his part in the lunar myth of Chang'e and the potion of immortality. But to refresh, during the time of the Ten Suns, Emperor Yao calls upon Yi to shoot the nine surplus suns out of the sky, and he does so, saving the earth from fiery desolation. But the time of the Ten Suns is also a period of great disruption, and many unnatural beings roam free to commit great offenses against the gods. And so Emperor Yao charges Yi with the destruction of these monsters as well. He has to hunt them down and slay them in order to protect the people. So is this after the sun shoots down the nine surplus suns and then goes to have to, he has to clean up afterwards with the monsters? Right. Yeah, yeah, because the, the, the cosmic disorder, it kind of, you're left with the idea that it kind of unleashed these beings or it created a, an atmosphere in which they could thrive and now they need to be put back in check. Rounding up the loose ponies. Yeah. Now, according to the translators John Major et al. in 2010's The Huai Nan Zi, A Guide to the Theory and Practice of Government in Early Han China, these monsters, the, these monsters that, uh, that Yi has to, uh, has to hunt down, um, they pop up in various warring states and Han works and seem to represent destructive forces of nature. One of these monsters you'll learn about next week on the Monster Fact, our, our Wednesday shorty episode. Uh, and that one, I think you can also make, uh, there's also a strong evidence to support the idea that it represents some sort of natural disaster as well. Mm-hmm. But there's one uh, in particular that's very connected to the idea of storms, and that is the wind bird, Da Feng. So this literally means a strong wind. Sometimes I see it translated as typhoon. It's a giant, ferocious bird of prey that brings with it strong winds whipped up by its mighty wings. So everywhere it goes, it brings destructive winds with it. So, of course, Yi has to, has to hunt it down. And he uses the, interestingly enough, he basically just uses the techniques that one would use in hunting birds, uh, especially during this time period. He attaches a cord to his arrow and shoots the, the mighty bird out of the sky. Uh, he holds the cord uh, firmly uh, so that he can you know, sort of keep track of it and kind of bring it down. And then he follows that cord to the site where he has grounded the, the mighty uh, Da Feng, and then he cuts its head off with his sword. Wow. Uh, in other tales, Yi also exacts revenge on the damaging river god, He Bo, uh, who he blinded in one eye. And then uh, he also hunts down uh, or seeks a vengeance on the wind god, Feng Bo, uh, who he shot in the knee. So you might be a wind god on a chariot pulled by dragons or a, or a god who actually takes on the form of a dragon, but that doesn't mean Yi doesn't have a receipt for you if you caused a bunch of storm damage. So this raises a thought for me. I, I'm thinking about um, what are the different influences that determine sort of uh, what level the embodiment of the storms uh, it represents within the, the pantheon or maybe not even the pantheon, the sort of uh, the supernatural theater of a mythological belief system. Because I'm thinking about – these cases where you can have a, a specific monster or creature, in this case it is a, a ferocious monster being uh, that represents a kind of disorder. It is, the, it is a pony that has gotten loose from an from a, uh, unharmonious phase of the universe, and it has to be slain mm-hmm. and set right. 
So this is the embodiment of storms in this one type of mythology. But you have plenty of other mythologies where storms are not only part of the natural divine order, but they are particularly the power of the like most powerful god or the king of the gods. Think of you know the storm associations with uh, with Zeus or Jupiter, or the storm associations with the some of the chief gods of the ancient Near Eastern pantheons. Yeah, it's 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 interesting to think about this. Yeah, because you can there's a huge difference between you know, the, the storm that is caused by the high god or a particularly powerful deity, one that is worshipped, and a storm caused by various monsters that are rampaging. Uh, you know, things that, that represent uh, cosmic disalignment, um, and uh, and yeah, you can have ramifications based on how you view that, but. Uh, it's it's interesting too to think about even in our modern times. What do we do with hurricanes and tropical storms? Mm. You know, we name them, mm. and of course, there there are very good reasons to name a storm to give it a human name. It it helps uh, in communicating things about that storm and tracking them, in making sure that people are prepared for this particular storm and not approaching it like you know the last storm. Uh, you know, each each hurricane that makes landfall is coming in at different different intensities and it's going to affect a different area uh, in a different way. It it does seem interesting that I could be wrong about this, but my gut feeling is that people have an easier time knowing which hurricane you're talking about when they have names attached to them than they would if you were Mm -hmm. just referencing it by like a year or something, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, like the storm of '97 or something. But if you if you give it a human name, yeah, you're you're anthropomorphizing it a little bit. Just you know, there's no way around it. but people are going to remember it. People are going to know it's coming. It seems to me that like when you say Andrew, that conjures up mm-hmm. like specific imagery that you recall from being associated with that name versus like if you were just to say the year number. I don't know. Maybe it would be different if we referred to it by years, but that's my feeling on it. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. 
In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now to, to move elsewhere in the world, uh, another one that I ran across is the Blue Men of Minch. Uh, so there, there are a lot of merfolk myths and legends out there that involve the creatures having some degree of control over or knowledge of weather and storms, mm-hmm. and they're ultimately just too numerous to go through. There's a lot of uh, similarities between them. But this one stood out to me. Uh, the mer people were said, this particular variety of mer people anyway, were said to haunt the Minch Passage of the Outer uh, Hebrides off of Scotland. Uh, this uh, body of water is known in Gaelic as Srothnap uh, Fir uh, Gorma, the channel of the blue men. Uh, so th- this is also interesting because earlier we were talking about gray men, and here we are with blue men. Mm-hmm. So they were said to look like normal humans, except with entirely blue skin and gray beards. And it's a treacherous passage of water, apparently. And so the, the legend was that the blue men would rise up from their deep caves and they would summon fierce storms against trespassing human ships and wreck them. But wise captains knew that the blue men loved rhyming contests. So uh, they could earn the ship's safety across the passage if they just had some great rhymes up their sleeves. Hmm. 
Now, um, Carol Rose, in, uh, in her book, she, she shares that the myth is thought to be based on Moorish slaves marooned by Vikings in the area during the ninth century. And the idea here is that, uh, that uh, these, uh, these individuals would have worn long blue robes and gray-blue veils. Huh. And incidentally, the Tuareg people of, uh, of Saharan Africa uh, apparently do wear these fashions, like these are the traditional fashions of the Tuareg people. Now, do you know if uh, that's more of a kind of legendary explanation, or is that thought by any modern scholars to ha- have any uh, likely explanatory power in, in the origin of the myth? Well, I was looking into it a bit, and apparently Scottish folklorist Donald A. McKenzie, who lived 1873 through 1936, uh, was kind of the, uh, uh, the, the individual who really uh, popularized this hypothesis. And today, I think there's some individuals who think that the true origin might just be accounts of the Tuareg people of the, the of Saharan Africa that traveled, um, you know, some sort of, um, you know, communication of this idea. Maybe the, you have some sort of a merfolk tradition and you combine that with with, uh, uh, you know, some sort of knowledge of, uh, of, of Tuareg people and what they wore uh, or in, if not the Tuareg people, then perhaps um uh, predecessors to them that had similar fashions and similar, uh, uh, you know, dyes in use. Mm. Uh, but another suggested explanation is that this belief in the blue people, uh, the blue men, that it refers in some fashion to tattooed pits. Uh, ah, these yeah. would have been, uh, uh, you know, people who were known for their tattoos. Uh, and the, the Latin uh, origin of pits is painted people. I seem to recall this from the Roman period, at least some author talking about the idea that there would be uh, people in, um, I don't know what they called it at the time. It was at Caledonia, you know, the area that is now mm-hmm. Scotland, you know, north of England. So you would have had Ro- Roman Britain, and then at a certain point that you have Hadrian's Wall, and then there are tribes that live north of that that they regarded as very barbaric. And I think they uh, there's some reference there to these people being painted in blue or their warriors being painted in blue. Yeah. So ultimately, you know, we don't we don't know exactly what the blue men of Minch is referring to, or what indeed what which, what influences or what combination of influences led to this tradition. Uh, but it was said they can control the weather, so uh, it's certainly worth mentioning here. Now another one. Now I have to get into the realm of yokai here for a bit, mm-hmm. um, and and I'm especially excited to to, to talk about this because um, I recently picked up a fun little book to read with my son titled "Yokai Attack: The Japanese Monster Survival Guide." Ooh. Um, uh, this is uh, by Yoda and Alt, and illustrated by uh, by uh, Tatsuya Morino, and it's a fun little book with uh, uh, that, that has some wonderful illustrations, but also some great information in it. It's well cited and uh, very informative and, and very fun for young readers. Uh, so uh, I was looking through that and I was like, okay, I, I know there's some yokai that relate to the weather or to the water. So there's got to be something good in here. Lay it on me. Well, there's one by the name of Umi Bozu. Uh, they're known as the sea monks. Uh, a Japanese yokai said to resemble great black bull-like beings with glowing eyes emerging from the water. Uh, and the black may or may not be fur, if you could touch it, depending on the, uh, the account. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, depending on the account, they might be vengeful ghosts of the sea. 
and in this, they have much in common with some Chinese ghost traditions, uh, the boat spirits or uh, fonoyure, uh, which uh, you'll find uh, illustrations of as well. Uh, but uh, anyway, the, the umi bozu are said to rise from the surface of the ocean even during the day. Even so, even if there are, there's there's nothing going on, you know, with darkness and storm, but they bring with them atmospheric disturbances and storms. Um, and of course, this means that ultimately, what they're trying to do, of course, is they want to uh, bring down vessels. They want to uh, cause your ship to sink, uh, drag it to the bottom of the ocean. And uh, the smaller ones, you might be able to drive away, but the larger ones are just too powerful. Okay, so this would be more in line with the type of creature like the windbird from from Chinese legend that that literally brings the 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 storm and weather disturbances by its own, like it directly causes them. Yeah, yeah, would seem to be the case. Um, and uh, these are these are fun ideas to get into as well because first of all, the idea of any kind of enormous being, certainly um, you know this this black creature emerging from the water, uh, it instantly makes us think of whales. And indeed, there there may be some connection there between uh, uh, between these legendary creatures and whale sightings. And I, uh, also, there's the possibility that there's some sort of atmospheric ghost lighting involved as well, uh, which is uh, you know, uh, something uh, worth remembering anytime you're dealing with ghosts of the ocean. But uh, one of the interesting takes I was reading about the, the Funoyuri, the, the, the Chinese version of this, the, the boat spirits, uh, is that they were sometimes attributed uh, with uh, ladling water into ships and causing them to, to sink or, or just by their very presence causing compasses not to work. Uh, but they were also said to simply hold ships in place. Mm. And some have theorized that this might occur due to dead water. So this is a, a nautical phenomenon, which uh, uh, you see take at least a couple of different forms. Uh, for instance, you see it in, in far northern um, uh, environments, you see this uh, situation where slow-moving vessels can become stuck due to a thin layer of fresh water spreading over the sea from melting ice. Um, uh, but then also you see the situation with internal waves uh, due to shallow brackish water in the upper layer of the water column, uh, making it uh, where a ship will feel stuck in the water uh, as if something is holding it there. Uh, so it's been hypothesized that this could be a possible, uh, one of the possible reasons for this kind of myth. Like something is holding the ship in place. What is it? It must be some sort of ghostly presence. Oh, yeah. I think uh, this makes me recall. It might have been in our episodes about the uh, the sargassum seaweed that we uh, – mm -hmm discussed uh, other other supernatural ideas about the doldrums and, and ways that your ship can become uh, stuck in water without a propelling wind. Yeah. And of course, that's interesting too, right? Because the, the idea of a, a terrible storm can be devastating to the ship at sea, but also uh, an, a complete absence of weather can be equally uh, disturbing. Yeah. Now, uh, here's another uh, creature that came up uh, when I was looking around, and that's uh, um, the Elbst, an interesting <laughs> lake monster, this time from the folklore of Switzerland, centered on the lake um, uh, Selsbergsee near Lucerne. Uh, sightings are recorded from 1584 through 1926, kind of a bulky, multi-limbed dragon creature that may suddenly surface alongside boats and scare people, also may raid sheep uh, uh, herds at night and leave disturbingly mutilated bodies in its wake. Um, but their appearance in the water was said to foretell a powerful storm. 
Um, and uh, so I had to look this lake up. I wasn't familiar with it. Uh, it's also known as Sealy, and it covers 44 acres and reaches depths of 37 meters or 121 feet. Mm. Now, in Irish mythology, uh, you also have the Fomorians. Um, these were said to be the original occupants of Ireland who were defeated by the invading fur bogs and then transformed into grotesque monsters or giants. And then, of course, the Tuatha de Danann come along and they invade and they defeat the, defeat the fur bogs. And so the Fomorians are sometimes attributed with power over weather, over storms, as well as given the power to blight crops. Oh, yeah. We, we, we talked about Fomorians in the context of Cuchulain uh, or Cuchulain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, another interesting monster that is, that is definitely tied to the wind, at least in its origins, uh, are the harpies. And I think harpies are interesting because I think a, a lot of modern monster fans probably think of, of maybe two or three different things when you imagine the harpy. Uh, first of all, there are Ray Harryhausen's harpies from Jason and the Argonauts. Do you remember these? Oh yeah, these terrible blue women with uh, with the the large blue bat wings. Yeah, they have bat like wings in uh, in, uh, in Jason of the Argonauts, but they're yeah, they're pretty creepy, very gargoyle esque. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of this tradition, they're they're pretty weak enemies in Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, not very impressive, uh, but there's some cool illustrations of them. And then of course there's the harpy in um, the uh, the last unicorn, which is a terrifying and powerful creature that is is pretty much the direct opposite of everything they are in Dungeons and Dragons. And so in, I think, you know, generally in our interpretation of the harpies, we think of grotesque hybrids of vultures and women, sometimes with uh, other uh, influences thrown in. I've seen accounts where they say that they have bear ears. Wait, and in, wait, bear ears? Bear ears, like the ears of a bear. I can't mm-hmm. even picture bear ears. What do bear ears look like? I don't, I mean, that's why I'm, I think we, we often just, just whittle it down to just, uh, you know, uh, old woman plus uh, vulture. You know, because you throw in these other influences. Yeah, what does it even mean? Okay, I just looked M- up maybe bear ears. Maybe a more in times. <laughs> bear ears, they're little nubs. I mean, like, bear ears do not seem like especially notable kinds of animal ears. Yeah, well, maybe it, it meant more uh, during the time when <laughs> when this was attributed to their to, to their their these these monsters. That's such a funny choice. I love it. Now, in Greek and Roman myth, the number of the harpies it, it varies. There may be as few as one or as many as five. And in origin, they are linked to traditions of wind spirits. Mm. And we see that in the various names that have been attributed to them. So in uh, Theogony, uh, Hesiod writes, quote, And Thomas wedded Electra, the daughter of deep-flowing ocean, and she bare him swift Iris and the long-haired harpies, Aello, storm-swift, and Osepetes, swift-flyer, who on their swift wings keep pace with the blasts of the winds and the birds, for quick as time they dart along. Mm. By the way, Dungeons and Dragons gives harpies a laughable 40-foot flying speed. Come on. Oh, that I- does not sound <laughs> as fast as time. What is it? Okay, so I don't know flying speeds usually. What is 40-foot? Oh, I think I've got a uh, – I think my character who's kind of a wimp has a 30-foot walking speed. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, thirty foot walk walking is like a general humanoid walking speed. So okay. the, the the harpy can fly just a little further than a, a human being can walk. Wow! Uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, which is uh, uh, clearly this is a creature that needs a needs a reboot in the monster manual. Now, uh, Homer also wrote of harpies, particularly the harpy uh, Padarje, which means a swift foot. 
uh, and this is said to be the mother of Balius and Xanthus, the steeds of Achilles. And uh, in a more general sense, though, the harpy is a human-bird hybrid, of course, and we see a, a lot of these in global myth cycles. And it's often pointed out that this sort of particular hybrid between humans and creatures of the air, it often has some sort of connection between earth and sky, between the world of mortals and the abode of the gods. Uh, the harpy also specifically uh, is often brought up as an example of the monstrous feminine uh, in uh, in myth-making. So an imagined creature used to convey negative attitudes attitudes about females and female bodies. Yeah, I think of it as a kind of standard genre of misogynist comment to to compare a woman that you don't like to a harpy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but it seems that in their original form, in their origins, they were more like minor wind gods or, or wind demons, uh, perhaps more in keeping with the Furies, who might descend on a mortal at the behest of a god. Uh, by the way, an interesting wrinkle in all of this that I think we've discussed before uh, is that the sirens, uh, who we often think of now, and, you, and this is represented in art, you think of mermaids or you think of you know beautiful veiled women emerging from the surf, but they were originally bird-female hybrids as well. And so uh, ancient depictions of what we might think of as harpies in the modern sense uh, might have been sirens or in some cases uh, just were something else, some other kind of bird-human hybrid. Uh, for instance, there is a tomb, uh, the, the tomb of Xanthus, found, uh, and uh, there's a, a carving from it, various carvings from it, I think, that you can find in the British Museum. And it's, it's been referred to for a long time as the harpy tomb. And you see this winged female figure, though it, it's, it's far from certain that these were sirens, but they were probably not harpies either. Mm. Uh, so uh, I think it's still an open question exactly what this particular being is supposed to be. You know, bringing this back to the special potency of weather mythology and weather monsters when it comes to sailing and, and ocean going. Uh, this reminds me of uh, a few years ago, I had a conversation with the author Chet Van Duzer about his, mm-hmm. uh, his books about the history of depictions of monsters on maps. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> and one of the surprising things about that is if you had to guess, okay, uh, what are the most common types of sea monsters you would imagine depicted on a map? Uh, you, you would probably guess what some kind of like ocean dragon type thing, or maybe the the kraken, or, or like a snake like sea monster. No, uh, mm-hmm. by far the most common type of monster, uh, at least depicted throughout the Western history of maps, is the siren. If you're going to have one type of monster on there, it's going to be a siren. And and do you remember if it was the the, the more merfolk style siren or the winged siren? I'm cautious to answer that because I'm not positive, but I seem to recall representations both ways. Mm. Um, Though I guess the winged version would probably be closer to this association with weather events. Yeah, I would, I would think so. Yeah. And and certainly the, 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 the curious nature of winds and winds at sea. And I, I guess that's where a lot of this comes back to like how, how do we today and how have people throughout history thought about weather patterns, particularly, Mm destructive weather that seem out of the normal, uh, you know, uh, that are unique and dangerous. How do we think about those? Are those the work of, uh, of strange creatures that we can't quite understand? Are they cosmic anomalies? Might there be some sort of magical being that would warn us if these are occurring? Is there some hero that could protect us from them, that could slay these monsters and return the world to, to some sort of normality? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating to think about. I wonder about something else coming back to gray man type sightings of, you know, the being that would warn you about, about a coming storm. 
I wonder to what extent legends like that could also sort of be going the other way in terms of our uh, internal mental causation, meaning like how much of it is based in people have some kind of experience, you know, they see what they think is a, is a spectral figure or a spirit of some, or something, and they want it to mean something. They don't want it to just be, I saw something weird and there's no reason for it. So mm-hmm. they try to connect it to something significant. It's trying to tell me X. This means Y. When we have unusual experiences, I think it's very natural for us to try to say, no, 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 that was not just an unusual experience. It was an indication of something. It was somehow informative. It meant something. And it seems like possibly the single easiest place you could go to there is connecting it to external environmental events like the weather. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one reason there's so much weather lore where people can say, oh, you can tell a storm's coming when, I don't know, when a cow sits down at night or something. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a million sayings like that. And it's because weather is constantly changing. So there's just like constant opportunities for you to observe one thing and then something happens with the weather and you make a connection there. Yeah, and our mind is constantly looking for those connections. We want to make those connections. And often with weather, the stakes are are enormous, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly when we're talking about highly destructive weather patterns. So, of course, uh, we're looking for some sort of connection between uh, the things we see in the world and what's going on in the weather. And that includes uh, uh, things we don't completely see, you know, or we, we, we miss see or we misinterpret or hallucinations and so forth. And so, yeah, I think that uh, I guess one place I was going with that is that perhaps that selective uh, sort of meaning seeking whenever you have a strange experience could lead to a form of selective reporting that uh, informs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, somebody thinks they see something weird in a photo or thinks they see something weird on the beach and then nothing happens the next day. Well, maybe I, I don't know who they really tell about that. But if the next day the hurricane hits and you think you've discovered some kind of uh, informative correlation there, you might be much more likely to tell everybody this story. Yeah. Uh, it, and and if it's not, if not the weather, then perhaps there's something else that occurs. Mm-hmm. You know, you see something strange and then the next day uh, a monarch dies yeah. or uh, yeah, a storm occurs or a family member grows sick. Then you can make that connection. You'd be like, ah, this is what that was about. It didn't happen for no reason. It was a warning. It was a communication. But yeah, it's funny because if you broaden it that much to just like basically any significant event, I mean, there's always something in the news. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like something happens every day. Yeah, I mean, stuff happens. It seems to happen for no reason. And if that if that's the case, you know, you have nothing. But if you have ghosts, well, then you have everything, right? <laughs> very nice, very nice. To bring it back to Rocky. Well, you know, they say the moon to the left is a part of my thoughts, and a part of my thoughts is a part of me is me. Uh, so, uh, so maybe before <laughs> our fangs get too long, we should cut this episode off. All right. Uh, but, of course, we're going to be discussing lots of uh, ghostly and monstrous things uh, for the rest of this month, and eh, probably a little bit beyond. Uh, we are, we're, we're, we're well into the season now. Uh, so stay tuned. It should be fun. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, her core episodes are on Tuesday and Thursday. 
We have an artifact or a monster fact on Wednesday. Monday is Lister Mail. Friday is Weird House Cinema. That's our time to just unwind and discuss a weird film. And of course, we have some very spooky films to discuss this month as well. And then on the weekend, we do a Vault episode, which is, of course, a rerun from the previous year. I just want to give a teaser that this week's episode of Weird House Cinema, I think, is without a doubt going to be our longest, most epic episode of all time and uh, <laughs> may, may remain that way because, yeah, I, I don't know if it can be outdone. Oh, I wonder if it's longer than the movie itself. I think we've, oh, we've had that happen at least once. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. We'll tune in to find out what that is. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.